0: Dealer, I'm feeling it hit
1: me. Welcome to the grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible no limit hold of hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult. As hands like ace king are removed from the grid whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash or just interested in absurd scavenger hunts we're gonna have some fun you got
0: the cards dealer i'm feeling it hit me yeah i got swagger they see me see me struttin'.
1: hello everyone and welcome back to the grid today i'm with trevor savage a poker player who has weathered the storms of this game to succeed as a pro for well over a decade trevor's actually the host of one of my favorite vlogs raising the nuts which features his kids his three kids providing their commentary and acting skills to craft hilarious gems that merge comedy and poker strategy he also has a podcast with his wife jody who's a nutritionist and health coach which is also called raising the nuts And he goes by at Trey Momi on Twitter. And today he's gonna take us all the way back to 2013 for a hand with six, nine suited. He actually plays New Jersey sites online but has recently been making the trip to Philly to play on PokerStars PA. So he's my very first grid guest live in my Philly studio. Welcome, Trevor.
0: Thank you so much. I'm really, really grateful to be on this podcast. It's one of my favorite podcasts out there. So I, I love the different range of guests that you've had so far. And it's I'm just really excited to be on.
1: Thank you. Well, tell us a little bit about this hand 6'9 suited. At what point in your poker career did it come up? And I know it took place in Las Vegas at the Rio, but... Where were you at in terms of a dad and a poker player at that point?
0: So this hand is a little, a little bit crazy. To take you into the, the behind the scenes of it, there's two important things to talk about. First of all, is about eight years into my poker career, but it was about two years into playing live poker once again. So I played online uh, prior to Black Friday and then went to parks to play every day. So I was becoming much more of a live player once again. I've kind of gone through a bunch of different things in my life as far as playing online and live. So I was in a very feel-oriented part of my game. I had trusted that my intuition would take me through my decision-making process. Uh, so that's the first part of it. So this is a very not theory-based play at all that, take pl- that took place in the sand. The second part is I was, you know, I'm a dad. Uh, my kids were almost five and almost three at the time. And we had decided that this year we would drive to Las Vegas for the for the World Series. So drive from right outside of Philadelphia all the way to Vegas. So we got in the car, drove to Chicago, then to Denver and to Las Vegas over a five-day stretch. And this game, this hand took place about two or three days into the trip once we got to Las Vegas. Because I had just driven, and I drove the entire way, my wife Jodi does not like to drive, so I drove the entire way throughout that time. And I was dealing with migraines, all these other issues while I was driving. So when I first got to Vegas, I just decided to start playing and I, I grinded a lot in those first few days, and I was just worn out. So that goes. that's the backstory behind this hand. It takes place at the Rio uh, in a 5-10 no-limit game, uh, about five or six hours into the session. So the way the game was structured, there were two weaker players in the game who were both on my left, and then the rest of the players were relatively competent, pretty aggressive players. The two players limped in, uh, and the player in the hijack was a, a young European guy who was very aggressive, and he limps behind. I'm in the uh, the small blind completes, and I'm in the big blind with 6-9 suited, 6-9 of diamonds, and check. Flop comes down, ace of diamonds, 10 of diamonds, 7. And I decide to lead out for $50 size of the pot. Now, it's important to remember here that I have to try to put myself back in 2013, me, when thinking about this hand. Because if I was trying to, to analyze this hand from... My current perspective, I don't think I could do it properly because we're just out in the mean streets there in 2013, you know, clicking buttons and doing things. I lead for $50, two players to my left fold, and the aggressive player in the hijack makes the call, uh, and the small blind folds. Uh, when he when he calls, you know, I don't think he has many strong hands because I would assume that he would be uh, opening to isolate the weaker players with pretty much all ace-x hands. So when he calls, I think he has like a 10x hand or some of the weaker draws. The turns in offsuit four, and I decided to continue betting, you know, put some pressure on the the weaker parts of his, his range. And I bet $115 and he raises to $350. So you bet
1: $115 into how much?
0: Uh, into $150. Okay. He raises to $350 and immediately my spidey sense is going off that he's kind of full of it. You know, there's just really hard for him to have many good hands here. I think the best possible hand he could have would maybe be 7-4 of diamonds. When I check in the big blind, I can easily have hands like pocket sevens, ace seven offsuit, ace ten even that I would not necessarily be raising out of the big blind in this spot. So I go ahead and put in the three bet on the turn. And you know that's something you don't really even see that much these days at all, is putting in a three bet out of position on the turn. You know, we started the hand about $2,600 deep, so 260 big blinds deep. So there's a lot of room to maneuver. I put in a three bet to 850 and he makes the call. Uh, the river is an offsuit ace. And now I think if I was in today's shoes, I would probably consider betting here because I'm in just a small sizing because You know, it's not great because I block a bunch of the hands I wanted to have. But uh, he either pretty much has a full house or he has nothing. And so if I can bet, it's pretty small. In-game at the time, I didn't know what to do. I didn't have a plan for this situation. You know, this is 2013. So you're kind of just out there clicking buttons, figuring it out as you go.
1: Yeah, you're supposed to make a diamond. Yeah, I was supposed to make a flush or an eight.
0: So I thought for a while and just decided, okay, I'm just going to give up. And I check. And it gets over to him and he starts to think for a long time. A, a really long time. So now as he's thinking, you know, I'm obviously paying attention to what he's doing. And I'm very into live reads and and feel, you know, filling out my opponents. He thinks for a very long time and then jams for 1700. Uh,
1: 1700 into? Into
0: 1850 it was, some, somewhere around there. And so I didn't just snap muck because I'm, I'm like, as he was thinking about what to do, I felt like he was bluffing. He was just trying to decide whether he wanted to pull the trigger on bluffing. But the problem is I have nine high, nine six high at that. You know, so I lose to 9-8. In the back of my mind, though, I thought, if I do make this call here, there's a really good chance he's just going to toss it into the muck. If he has 9-8. If he yeah. has 9-8 or one of those hands. I, I don't know if that's because I saw him bluffing muck earlier in the, in the session or if that was just what I assumed would happen. Uh, I do not beat that many hands. You know, hands like 8-5 suited, I beat hands like 8-6, which would be a gut shot on the flop that, uh, that turned double gutter, I think would be the ones that I beat... Be most likely that I would be. And then a uh, hand like 3-5 suited or 2-5 suited. I think those hands are more likely to be in his range, given that he limped behind in this spot, than hands like, say, ace-4 offsuit. I, don't, I didn't think that he'd be the type to limp an ace-4 offsuit type hand in this spot. And then his, his suited aces, I thought he'd raise most of them. There's also only one combination of, of suited aces. Now, at the time, I wasn't sitting there thinking about all these combinatorics and things like that. I was just thinking to myself, is this guy bluffing? Let me look at this guy and see if he's bluffing. As I mentioned earlier, as far as fuel play goes, I made a decision right around 2012 that I would just always go with my gut. I would trust my intuition. I'd played enough hands. I'd have had enough data to, to rec- recognize that if I trusted my gut, I was gonna make good decisions. And then if I, you know, falling back, if I if I didn't have a good read on the situation or good intuition, then I could fall back on some theoretical things and things like that. So after a while, I, I decided to make the call. He snapped it into the muck and I, t- I turned my hand over and he laughed a little bit. The, there was an older gentleman to my right, and he whispered to me, I think he, he might have folded the best hand. And I said, no, I, don't, I don't know. And nobody else said a thing at the table. They We're weren't just, paying attention. Maybe. They weren't paying attention. We just went on to the next hand, and, and we moved on from there.
1: So it was ace ten, Ace ten, seven with two diamonds, four, and then another
0: ace in the river. And you're calling with nine high. And why did you show the hand? Uh, I, I think, I can't remember at the time if you had to show to win the pot or not. I, oh. I'm not sure if that was the rule or not. I, I'm guessing it was. I definitely didn't show just to, to like be proud of my call or anything like that, because I think that's a like a negative free roll to your to your self-esteem. You, know, like you, you feel like you're boosting yourself up, but I don't think that actually is the case. And I wasn't like trying to send a message to anybody. I, I it had to be that I had to show the hand because I know at least nowadays, if I don't have to show the hand, I just you know put it in the muck no matter what I call with. So I'm guessing I had to show it to win the pot.
1: But you get some extra elements of story, and in your vlog where you talk about five of your most memorable poker hands, you include this one in there. And you mentioned that later you talked to the gentleman about this hand, and he said that he actually did have worse than you. Yeah, he I, he had eight five of diamonds. Do you believe him though? Because I feel like maybe to protect yourself from feeling really bad, you you could potentially like lie
0: in that spot. I, I think he could lie in that spot for sure, but he. he... Given that his reaction when I showed my hand and he just kind of laughed a bit, it wasn't like one of those nervous laughs where you're like, oh, I just mucked the winner. Uh, it was one, more one of the the genuine, that's pretty funny, he called me with nine high type things. Yeah,
1: that like heart stopping, like, oh my God, <laughs> or like I misclicked or something like that. There's yeah. like a certain feeling where your heart just drops, right? right?
0: exactly. And I want to say, I don't think this was a good call. Maybe I did at the time. Looking back on it, I mean, when you go through theory, it's got to be a terrible call given... My hand blocks a lot of the hands that I want him to have. There's very few combinations of hands that he could be bluffing with. And, you know, it kind of goes back, when you're talking about it in theory, it goes back to what I said about, what I thought about his preflop range. And it just, is also hard to come up with a lot of good value hands that he would have in this spot. So, you know, all those things considered, I think it was more one of those things where I was so tired and I was dealing with the migraines, you know, and I might've been into the flow of the game. Clearly, I felt like he was bluffing and I made the call, but I think it was more one of those things where I was just, exhausted. And and a good result came out of it, but it might not have been the best decision in the long run, if you know what I mean.
1: Totally. I mean, the funny thing about being tired is that I guess you're maybe more connected to your base instincts, which include calling out of curiosity, you know, for a good story. Yeah. Probably everybody has their own tendencies there. Like some people, if they're exhausted, they might be more likely to fold, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. maybe that that plays into the decision as well.
0: Well, I I have noticed that in tournaments, I always do better in tournaments if I'm not rested. It's just the calmness and patience, I guess, in, that you need to have in a long, long tournament. That if I'm not well rested, I, I tend to make better decisions because I'm not trying to force things because I'm mostly a cash game player. So when I get into a tournament, I guess I have that. If I'm not playing in my best mindset, I have the the mindset of just trying to accumulate as many chips as possible very quickly, you know, early on in the tournament. Whereas if I'm a little not as rested, I might be more patient in the early going.
1: That's fascinating. I mean, I I see what you're saying there that a nine handed tournament, if you're all like juked up on coffee, you just got a great workout on you want to like affect the destiny of the game in
0: some way. So it's probably more. Uh, an argument for not sleeping you want to sleep you need to get the sleep in it's i'm going to be play better if i do sleep i know that so it's more of an argument for patience and what is going to get you in the best mindset to be patient throughout the tournament and you know for me it seems like not getting sleep allows me to be patient but i don't think that's the good way to get there you know what i mean so i think i think going for tea and being uh exercising all those things are going to help you one
1: of the things that I, reasons I created this podcast was to kind of like merge like the, the idea of story with the idea of theory as you know creativity and poker theory aren't necessarily these opposites like people sometimes think seem to think that you know poker theory is robotic um, and what interests me about you as a popular vlogger is that is there some argument we're calling with a hand like that because it makes such a freaking great story, and what is the
0: currency of story? Well, one, it does create an amazing story, and the best part about it is, if you're wrong, you never have to tell it, right? I mean, if you're wrong, you know, you can tell it. It might be enjoyable for people to tell, and you know, when you're when you're a vlogger, you certainly want to be authentic and you want to be transparent. But you can certainly omit some certain certain things that maybe didn't turn out to a great story. But I think the great thing about poker is that there's just a story created in every single hand, and that's why I love poker so much. And you don't really even have to go out of your way to create a story. And I see this in my vlog because when I we just had a meetup game this week down at Maryland Live, and some of the things that happened and to be in poker and to be able to get them on camera, and and say that this is what happened. It's just. I I think it's just the most magical thing as far as creating content goes because it's just a story told in every single hand and uh, if you're able to get that footage on camera and, you know, poker is a game of people and and being able to sit at a table with eight other people, they're all going to come in with all these different biases and different stories and they're going to, the way that they live their life, you're going to see it on the table too. And, uh, and to be able to put that into a into a hand history on a YouTube channel, I think is pretty cool.
1: So you're saying like you don't really need to force it because stories are just gonna be generated organically, especially for something like YouTube where you're distilling the most interesting parts of a pretty long session.
0: Yeah, for sure. And the, the one thing about me too is, especially in these meetup games, is that I go in and I play just about every hand. And so you get into a lot of different situations when that happens. When you're in there playing every hand, there's going to be all kinds of things that come up and different patterns that emerge and the game because it's a mathematical game it creates these scenarios that seem to somehow pop up over and over again you know you'll have a table i remember in the main event this year we had for some reason pocket eights kept getting dealt out and this is something that people who are casual players of the game love you know pocket eights pocket eights is the hot hand and then and they were flopping a set on every time and then it comes up and then it happens for the fifth time in a row. And you say, how did that, how is that real? How did that just happen? And, you know, to be able I obviously couldn't get those on, on camera because it was during the main event, but to be able to get things like that on camera, I think is really interesting.
1: Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, I know that you are a, a very strong grinder. I mean, you are a winning player for many years. And before you started vlogging a year ago, you made your living by playing poker, both live and online. How do you, be a winning player when you're v-pipping 100% is it possible and how weak does the field have to be for that to be the case yeah so
0: if you're playing with very tough opponents it's very impossible playing especially doing it online in a say a lower stakes game um, you have to find the right limit and the right mix of players but I did it for a while uh, doing a play every hand challenge on PokerStars New Jersey where I was streaming it and and playing 100% of hands, I could fold if there was a three bet before it got to me. A lot of it is due to the fact that players are right in that, I was playing at 25 cent, 50 cent. So that's kind of right in between the limits of where people just see every flop. And then there's some people who are actually still trying to play for a living at that at that stake. So the people who are trying to play for a living are playing a lot of tables and they're just ignoring, they see my screen name, they know that I play higher stakes. So they're just kind of ignoring the fact that I'm playing 100%, 100% of hands. And then the other people are just going to be the weaker players who I can get involved with. So certainly the field has to be very weak. And the other problem is the rake at those levels. It's really hard to beat the rake in that spot. But I think if there were no rake involved and I could get into certain situations, I think that I could show a profit in those. Um, As far as like in the live arena, you really have to mix. You have to understand how to get involved pre-flop. So for a lot of, at, at certain tables, certain one, two games down in Atlantic City, let's say, you can just raise pre-flop and win the blinds a bunch. You know, if you go during the day on a Wednesday, because yeah. there are just people that are there to hang out and socialize, and they, they don't want to be at those tables where someone's raising every hand. At other tables, you have to try to minimize your losses by just limping with the weaker parts of your hand, because if you're going to see the flop six ways and you have uh, a three offsuit, you don't want to put $10 in, but nobody else is going to raise. So, you know, you're just going to see the flop for $2 and then and lose $2 in the hand most of the time. Or you know, win the $8 that's out there when everybody shows no aggression at all. So it takes a certain amount, a certain type of game. I could definitely not go into some game where people are trying, <laughs> where they're trying and paying attention to exploit you. You know, a lot of these games that I'm doing it in, everyone else is playing 100% of hands too. It's, you're just trying to minimize losses and then maximize gains obviously when you hit hit big hands, so.
1: Really interesting. I mean, it sounds like a kind of thing where you are you have two goals. You want to win money or not lose money, but you also want to meet this challenge and have a really fun time and kind of broaden your perspective of poker by playing hands that you would never normally play unless you're playing heads up.
0: So the place that I got this idea from initially was a card player article from probably 13 years ago and it was written by Daniel Negreanu. And he, he said that once a month he would have these party days. He would go into his game and he said he would just play every hand. And it would put him in a bunch of different situations that he wasn't used to and he'd have to figure out how to navigate out of there you have to think differently about the game and so i used to do this all the time i would go to the lower stakes and i would just say i'm going to play 100 of hands and try to learn from it what can i get out of this i'm not usually in this situation what does this person's range look like where can i bluff on what boards and things like that and so that's where it came from and i just always enjoyed it and it's i mean it's just more fun to play more hands right i mean you just get into the action more it creates a better environment for everybody else in the game and I think, especially at these meetup games that we do, the atmosphere that is able to to be created by playing so many hands, it's unlike any other experience that you'll have in poker. I love these meetup games. To get to connect with people who watch your content and then they get to play pots at the end. That's what I'm there for. They're going to be playing, like, if you're at my table in a meetup game, we're going to be getting into some pots. You're going to be, Having to make some decisions against me, and people, you know, they want to, they want to win pods against me, so they're going to go out of their way to do so.
1: So that's interesting because to me, it sounds like you're, you have this kind of stipulation in the, in the beginning of the hand, pre-flop, that you're going to play every hand, but then post-flop, you're reverting to playing as well as you can and being super competitive. Is that the right read?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be making, you know, pre-flop, obviously making negative EV decisions b- when you're playing every hand, but post-flop, I'm going to be making the best possible decision I can. The thing about it is. I'm going to have to bluff way more, right, because I'm playing all these hands. So I'm going to have to be bluffing more. I'm obviously going to have to value bet thinner, but you have to recognize pain thresholds in people. You know, if you can recognize thresholds, then you can get away with bluffing way, way, way more. And that allows you to play these more hands.
1: Yeah. And are there exceptions? Like, suppose there's like a, a four bet in front of you. you. You have like some exceptions where you won't play in that
0: game. Right, exactly. Actually, the exceptions are that I'm allowed to fold if there is a three bet in front of me. Okay. This is if I'm doing the play every hand challenge. When I do the play every hand challenge, it's usually going to be at a one two game in the casino where there's very little three betting anyway. So I am playing most hands. My goal is to raise money for charity. So I donate any winnings that I win in these challenges uh, to charity. When I'm playing in the meetup games, I don't, I'm not playing that strict play every hand challenge rule, So it's more, I'm just going to probably be playing, it depends on the table, but I'll probably be playing 70% plus of hands. I'm allowed to fold preflop. It just depends on the situation because, you know, if the meetup games, are, you're going to have better players for sure on average than your normal one, two game in the casino. And I would just, I would be just tossing away money if i were to, to try to play every hand 70 percent
1: plus of hands is a lot of hands what what gets into that into that like uh the bubble like what's the number 70 <laughs> the 70 percent hander that okay. gets in
0: well the thing is it's not 70 percent hands necessarily it's if it folds to me probably in the hijack i'm just raising blind okay so we're we're going 100 percent from the hijack on earlier position you know if it's suited we're in there for sure obviously the offsuit variety we Probably the worst offsuit maybe be like jack six offsuit that we're getting in there with, I'm guessing.
1: Okay, so of course it's an aggregate of 70%. Right, yeah. exactly, yeah. So under the gun, you might, it might be like 40%. Right. Okay, and then butt in to hijack Although under
0: the gun, we're straddling every time, so. Oh, okay. Got so <laughs> the right. next under the gun, I guess, you know. That's. that's oh, wait, not- hold on, sorry. Actually, under the gun one, we're double straddling. I'm to, If there's other straddles on, we're triple straddling. So at, at least at my tables, I'm always advocating for us to straddle, get three blinds in there. If if we want to put double straddles on, let's do it. That's We're trying to get the action going at these meetup games.
1: That sounds like so much fun. Do other people in these meetup games also play like um, almost every hand or is it... More of like it, a mix.
0: It's really interesting to see the different table dynamics in the meetup games. And I was actually talking to my wife, Jody about this at the game, because there's certain tables where you get a mix of people who are just there to play with the vloggers. And they're normally one, two players. So they're buying in for 200 or 300 and they're folding tons of hands. Then you get other guys that are in there who are, are there to have a good time and gamble it up. And you get these tables where the first table I was at the other night, we had multiple five. It was, the game was three, five it was three, five, 10, 20, 40 uh, hands. And then the next table I went to was five walks in a row, you know, so... There's a mix. It is a mix. And and that type of table, the reason that there's walks is because when I sit down at that type of table, I can judge the table dynamics. And at that point, I thought that they would be more aggressive than it actually was. And then it turned out there were going to be five walks because I guess the players felt like they were so good and they just didn't want to get involved. So obviously, after that point, I started opening every hand instead. Uh, but it's, you get a really big, big mix of people from all different stakes, you know, people... Who normally play higher six come down and play in these meetup games because there's a lot of recreational players that are coming out to play in them totally to so get a total mix of players
1: and what what charity do you donate to uh
0: all different ones we i, I try to focus on uh, mental health charities or um charities it, usually it depends on what's going on in my life at the time so i'm actually right now going to be trying to partner or, or partnered with um with dan smith's double up drive there's a charity called strong minds that helps um mental health in africa uh, women in africa
1: right yeah he i think is it uganda i think um yeah yeah and he was on our podcast mm-hmm. and he talked a little bit about that as well that sounds fantastic and of course one of the whole points of doubled up drive is that anything you raise gets matched by dan smith and company and that uh, really just is an awesome way to make year-end contributions because they get doubled
0: exactly it's it's just a it's an amazing concept and to be able to to match the donation is, is pretty awesome
1: so speaking of mental health, back in 2013, what kind of space were you in mental health wise? Because I know you've made a lot of strides in that arena, and that's one of the major topics of your podcast with your wife.
0: Yes, so that's the other reason I thought this hand was good to have on on this podcast, because that hand happened in 2013. Happened in you know the middle part of the year, but at the end of the year, uh, December 30th of 2013, I was living my normal life. Online poker had just started in New Jersey. Things were good. Felt like, you know, I had the two kids. We had a third on the way. Felt like everything was good. And then all of a sudden, I started dealing with a lot of anxiety in my chest and in my brain. You know, I just started thinking all kinds of crazy thoughts about dying and, and things like that. And it all kind of culminated on this night in December uh, where I had a really bad panic attack. I, at the time, I didn't know it was a panic attack. At the time, I thought I was having a heart attack and I thought I was going to die. Went over to the emergency room. I was down in Atlantic City with my wife out to dinner. Went over to the emergency room still thought I was having a heart attack, thought I was going to die, was, you know, breathing heavily. And they eventually gave me some Ativan and I calmed down, woke up the next day. You know, they told me I had a panic attack. I woke up the next day, felt like I was in a car accident. And that day has really changed my life in a crazy way. When I woke up that next day, I, you know, I took it from the poker player perspective. You know, there's something wrong here. I got to figure out what's wrong. What was it that I need to do to, to fix this? Just like if you Identify a leak in your poker game. You take it that way. I didn't know what to do. You know, it's. It, I never thought that this was something that would bo- that would affect me. You know, I. I really. I'm an outward social person. I had felt like I had a great life at the time. What? Why could I be feeling this type of emotion? Like, you know, why would this bother me? So, over the course of the next six to eight months, I continued to have panic attacks. I had. Uh, They gave me Ativan in case I was having panic attacks. They put me on Paxil, which is an antidepressant. That was terrible. Bad decision. Didn't work out well for me. I was still trying to search for for an answer. You know, I just wanted this anxiety to go away. And now, you know, anxiety looks different to everyone. The way it looked to me was I would get a feeling in my body or a thought in my head that would think about death, where I just think I'm going to die. And what's going to happen to my family? Like all these other things like now,
1: not ultimately.
0: Like like now, right now. Yeah, I'm going to die right now. At the time, I didn't recognize that this is then your... When you get those thoughts and those feelings and you don't know how to address them, your fight or flight kicks on. And then when that kicks on, things spiral out of control very quickly when you're dealing with with a panic attack. You begin to not be able to think logically. And then all these things happen from there. You know, everybody's anxiety looks different, but that's exactly how mine looked. So I went to different doctors. I I tried all these different things. And ultimately, I found meditation. Uh, My wife had heard a talk by Andy Puddicombe who uh, started the app Headspace. And I, I listened to the talk, I read the book, and I started using the app. And finding meditation allowed me to see the thoughts that would pop up in my head in those moments or the feelings in my body and recognize that they were happening rather than trying to push them away. So what would happen was in the anxiety attack, those thoughts would come up and I'd think to myself, oh, it's gotta go away. This is not happening to me. Why is this happening right now? I gotta push it away, get rid of it. After meditation, I realized, I need to just recognize that they're there, give them the space to be there and then go back to what I'm doing. And that seems so simple to say, but it takes a lot of practice to get there. And then along with that with meditation, I worked heavily on my diet with Jody. I made sure I was exercising, getting enough sleep. You know, all the normal things that you hear about to to be healthy. I recognize that those are the things that I need to do to to keep my anxiety in check. So that's what I've been doing for the last 6 years basically is is I've been on this journey of figuring out my own brain and what makes it work the way that it does and how can I make it work optimally. Now this helps obviously for poker too, because you need to be in a great mental space in order to to achieve things in poker, but that's kind of where I'm at now. And then it's important. This is something for anybody out there who is struggling with anxiety or depression or those things. It's important to recognize that it doesn't just go away. It doesn't ever go away. So I didn't just get rid of my anxiety by doing these things. It's always there in the background somewhere. It's just about understanding your body and understanding your mind and putting yourself in a, in a position to be able to handle when certain things come up and recognize things for what they are. So that's been a big part of my life for the last six years. And I really, at the time, I thought, why did this happen to me? Why would I have such a bad panic attack? And why me? And, and you know, I, at first I looked at it as such a negative thing. You know, those eight months were really brutal for me where I couldn't there's many times I couldn't leave the house there's many events that I was out at that I had to leave I I didn't play many live tournaments at all for the first two or three years because anytime I would get into a big spot in the tournament I would start to feel those you know you get that adrenaline flowing in a tournament and I when I would feel that it would kick on my fight or flight and then uh you know I go back down that path again so but it turned out that that event taking place was one of the best things that ever happened to me And being able to have the podcast and the YouTube channel and to spread the things, like talk about the things that I've done to help myself with other people has been just an amazing experience.
1: I mean, that is very powerful that you're now able to encourage other people because poker, in some ways, is a hotbed for anxiety and depression to be unchecked, just because I think partly because so male dominated, so sometimes not as comfortable talking about their problems and feelings. Secondly, um, just the nature of the game involving a lot of weird sleep patterns mm-hmm. that can disrupt your rhythms and travel, which also can disrupt your rhythms. So I think poker is definitely, and, and you hear a lot of people talking about it now, which is great. especially Mm -hmm. when it comes from the top players that you realize that even they're struggling with it. Like when, you know, Jason Kuhn and people like that talk about it. Although it's funny because I want your perspective on something. Like I always have mixed feelings when like the best players in the game who are super successful and rich talk about their depression and anxiety because I do think it's great because it shows you that you can succeed. But in some ways, like Garrett, I think also has talked about it. Um, But I also feel... Like it is a position where it's easier to talk about it because you don't probably don't have a boss and you know, you're know, you not necessarily you're at the point in your poker career where you can stake yourself. Whereas a lot of people, maybe mid stakes, low stakes, like it could be that they don't want to talk about these things because maybe they feel like they're not going to get, you know, backed into the main event if they admit that they have these like depressive spells. So I'm, I'm kind of interested, in while I while I think it's inspiring, I also think it's important to recognize that when it comes from a position of privilege, there are different dynamics at play.
0: Yeah, I, I totally get what you're saying, and I've actually never really thought about it from that perspective. It's interesting to think about it. And it's tough because, like you said, if, if it's a lower stakes player, that maybe somebody might not want to then invest in them if they think they're going through these problems. But I think it's important to recognize that everyone's going through something, right? And there's all different... And, you know, it's, it's easy to say that as somebody who may have had success and things like that, but I think it, if anything, I would hope that it would encourage maybe a low stakes player to to say, okay, these guys seem to have it all and they're still dealing with stuff and they're willing to talk about things that they're dealing with. You know, they're not invincible. They're not Superman. You know, I can talk about this problem and then maybe if I can address my issues and get to a good headspace, then maybe I can get to where they're at and then have the same type of success that they've had. And this is something that I see a lot with people, especially celebrities and athletes. We're in Philadelphia, Brandon Brooks, who's an offensive lineman for the Eagles, just had an anxiety attack in a game a couple of weeks ago, and he talked about it openly. And you see some of the comments that people leave on, say on Facebook and things like that, where like, why could this guy have an anxiety attack? He's got all this money. He's got fame. He's a celebrity. It affects everyone. And And for somebody like him to talk about that openly, I think it just encourages the the discussion more so i I definitely get what you're saying as far as coming from a place place of privilege and and how it's easier for it should be easier for people to open up, I guess because they have success and they don't have anybody to answer to. but I think also you know when you're on that 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 pedestal, it can be harder to open up about these things because you know if people see you as this invincible figure and then you're showing vulnerability and weakness, perceived weakness, you know for me. I think if I see somebody like Brandon Brooks open up about it, I think of that as a place of strength. Same thing with, with, I talk about this a lot on our podcast, with therapy, with people who seek therapy. A lot of times people avoid seeking therapy because they think it's saying that they're weak or that there's a problem or whatever. If somebody reaches out to me and says, you know, I just, I just checked out therapy for the first time, I think that's amazing. That's, that's a sign of strength to me that you're able to, you know, recognize that maybe there's something that can help you and you, you can do it regardless of what the stigma may be.
1: Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And I do agree with you that it's also brave for top players to come out. Because let's face it, with these super high rollers, everybody is staked in, in some right. capacity, even the people who are quite rich. I mean, how many people really have a million dollars to put into one tournament? Not me. With that in mind, it's brave. But I just always think it's important to keep in mind the different dynamics of um, class, money, race, and all these things that can make it more difficult for certain people. And that's why I think it's really cool that one of the charities you're supporting is Strong Minds, because obviously we're, we're looking at giving mental health to people who might not have easy access to it and it might not be part of their, their culture or their family. I mean, so much of your relationship with doctors, I think that is why it's great to kind of see it cross-pollinate an industry like poker.
0: Yeah, for sure. The, the toughest thing for me about mental health I, you know, I don't have the answers. I, I think the the best way to move forward in society today to, to try to address the problem is just to start the discussion. And so that's what we aim to do on the podcast, to get people talking and to, to recognize that we can be there for people to reach out to us at any time. And that's one of my favorite things about the platform that we've created is that I have an email address that people can just email me anytime they want, or an Instagram page, and they can reach out to me. And, and people have, and I've and I, the, the reason why I, I was able to, to see that this was a thing was I, I wrote a blog post about a year after my anxiety attack. And I wrote about the experience. I hadn't talked to any of my friends. I hadn't talked to anybody about what I was going through, only my wife. And so I wrote this blog post uh, and I told my whole story. And then I got just an outpouring of people sending me messages. And I didn't say anything about send me a message about your story. They just all said, thank you so much for sharing I've dealt with the same thing and have never told anybody. And to receive all those messages and then to be able to talk to them about the things that I had done, you know, I'm not a doctor, but I've gone through this experience so I can share firsthand. And I tell them all the time, you know, this might not work for you, what I've done, but just opening the discussion and recognizing that there are some things that you can do to get yourself into a good place. And you're not alone, you know, there's such a power in just knowing that you're not alone in this. And that it can happen to somebody who, is a very social, outgoing person who, for all intents and purposes, has everything that they need in life.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's really incredible when you find out some of the people who struggle, and they're just so incredibly extroverted and charismatic. Like, for instance, I listened to your first podcast about your daughter, Cam, and I was really shocked because you just, like, see... She's, like, the star of your YouTube videos. She's Mm -hmm. so hilarious. She steals the camera anytime she's on screen. Mm -hmm. And you just think, like, oh, wow, this girl is just, like blessed with this awesome personality and, you know, she's going to have a really great life because she's got, she seems to have it all. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you see that actually there's a flip side where she's had all these struggles.
0: Yeah, for sure. And that situation, let's see, when she was, I guess, two or three years old, we started noticing a big change in her where she would just go into some, almost like a blackout for 45 minutes where she would go into a rage and violent rage and yelling and screaming and we didn't know what to do. We 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 went everywhere. We went to all different doctors and for the most part, you know, she was a normal kid up until that point. And we're not sure what exactly flipped the switch. And ultimately, after years of very rough days, and you know, that that's something that being able to play poker for a living and then also be a dad to have to juggle those two things, it's a question I get a lot is how do you how do you handle being a dad and also playing poker for a living? To me, it's not too different than other jobs. But because you use your mind so much in poker, you have to be able to separate the two. So when I'm playing poker, I'm playing poker. And when I'm a dad, I'm fully there being a dad. If I take the the situations like what was happening with her into my poker game, then I'm going to be in a bad shape. Um, so those years were were tough for us. But ultimately, it took a long time. But we ultimately found that she had an intolerance to gluten. And when we took the gluten away, there was just a massive difference in her. And I couldn't believe it. And I still kind of don't believe it. I'm like, how could it be gluten that caused this? But there's just been such a huge change in her behavior since then, and so that's been been really good. You know, she still struggles with some things. We f- we found out also that she had hearing loss in one ear. There were all these other um, interesting things that came up at the time. But she's just in such a better place now than she was when we went through all that. So
1: depression, anxiety, mental issues are obviously very difficult. But I I do find that there are often people who have just incredibly incredible mental and creative abilities that seem like somehow the good is somewhat connected to the bad in some ways maybe even if only for the fact that it gives you rich experiences that you can reflect on and in your own case you were sharing with me that you have a incredible memory and you've played millions of poker hands in your career and i i wonder about that like is there some kind of like pressure created from just like having so much knowledge and memories stored up in your brain that you know requires this like emptiness time of meditation even more than it would for other people
0: yes 100 percent. and one thing that i've noticed that has helped me recently is i used to play lots and lots of tables and then for the rest of the day i was just done i couldn't do anything and that was negatively affecting the rest of my life for sure because when you're so locked in and so focused and you have all these things running through your brain it becomes hard to answer questions for the next hour or two after you've just had this experience. So I've lowered the number of tables for me on that front. But I I think when you, when you come back to just enjoying what you're doing, really enjoying what you're doing and having fun in in the process of doing it, all those things are in your head that you, all the memories and all the the different things that you're trying to go through when you're making a decision. But I feel like when you're just having fun doing it, it it becomes less pressure. And I I think that's something again, that comes with uh, longevity in the game and success in the early parts of my career. I was so focused, on proving myself and proving to others that I was worthy of playing poker for a living and that I was a good poker player. And around that same time as this hand that we talked about is when I made the decision that I just didn't care about it anymore. I didn't care about what other people thought about my poker game and I was just gonna make what I thought was gonna be the best play at the time. And that kind of goes back into that feel of the game, the the intuition, I was gonna trust that I was gonna make the right decision and not care what anybody else thought
1: that's really hard because i think one of the issues for poker players especially in live poker is that there's these multiple filters where you're thinking about what the right play is but then also what your play will like will look like to the other nine players at the table and you know that's something nice about online poker that while that exists it's definitely not as prominent mm-hmm. But hey, the live, I think the live poker, that's one of the great life skills you can learn from the game that you have to cope with that situation and try to make primary your own mind, not what it looks like.
0: Right, exactly. And it's a big mental block for a lot of people to just do what you think is right rather than what other people think is right. You know, obviously, it's important to study theory and things like that. But I think that's something that a lot of people might be missing nowadays with with the solver craze. And I think this is something that Chewie might have touched on a bit, which which is that if you've played this game long enough, you you can rely on intuition for some things. And, you know, for me, the way that I play these days is I will still always go with my gut and I'm going to go with my intuition on, on situ- situations for what I think is best. And then if I don't have a strong gut feeling, which is possible these days because people are, are getting better then, if you have that theoretical to fall back on, you can do so, and and just think, okay, where am I at in my range, etc.
1: Yeah, it's hard because you have to be like, I think it's, I think there's still so much to be gained by intuition, but then there's also false intuition. So it just like you have to be really clean, I think mentally and emotionally, in order to gain a lot of value from it. And that's where a lot of people just kind of revert to the theoretical because. A lot of times it's a curiosity call or a fear mm-hmm. fold or a angry bluff. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult to untangle that with intuition and just like emotions.
0: Right. And so this is where what you mentioned about as far as getting into your own mental space and meditation and things like that, that's where this can be really good for me at least because I feel like I'm so in touch with what my mind is doing at the time that I can recognize certain biases that I might have. And so I can recognize, am I bluffing right now because I think I should be bluffing, I feel like I should be bluffing, or am I bluffing right now because I just want to bluff this guy? And if you can make that differentiation, it's a fine line to walk, and it's not something that can be taught, but I think you can find a lot of big edges by doing that if you've been in the game for a long time. Now, if you're just starting out in the game, or you maybe don't trust your intuition as much, or you think there might be more false intuition Involved in your game, surely going through a theoretical approach is going to be far better for you.
1: Yeah, I mean it's incredibly difficult. I mean poker is so hard that it's it's like if if you have a lot of these emotions like you know swirling through you, it's like incredibly normal. And in fact, like that's why so many people advise going with the the theoretical unless you have like a really strong read. Speaking of reads, it's interesting that in your hand with this guy that we we started off with with six nine suited, you. Saw him thinking for a long time and you read that as a bluff. If they're bluffing, a lot of times they won't think too long right. because it looks ridiculous to like think for five minutes and then bluff. Right, right. Exactly. I think it
0: was just one of those things where when you're at a live table, you try, you can try to get into someone's head, right? You can try to, what is this person thinking right now? And if you're really good at it, especially in river spots, you know, they're either bluffing or they're, or they're betting for value, right? And when you've played so many hands, you can get that sense of, what is it that they're trying to accomplish right now? And what is it that they're thinking about? And it's really hard to describe, but it was just one of those things where he's thinking and I'm then I'm thinking he's, he's trying to figure out if he should bluff or not.
1: That's great because I feel like a lot of people on the river, well, I guess not with your hand so much, but with... A lot of people who even have like King High in that situation, like the main mantra going through their head is, please don't bet, please don't bet. I want to get the show down. Right. <laughs> but it's like use that precious time to actually like get into their head rather than use it on you know, right. what your desire is.
0: Exactly. And I think that's something that I try to, to, if people contact me with poker questions, I try to let them know that what they should be thinking about during a hand, right? You shouldn't be trying to, convince your opponent to do something in your head, you should be thinking about what you're going to do and how you're going to react to what they do, especially for beginning poker players. A lot of times they don't know what to think about. I remember myself back in 2005 at the Tropicana playing one, two, no limit. I remember sitting at the table thinking, what am I supposed to be paying attention to right now? What am I, I I know I should be analyzing something at this table right now. But you know, back in those days, the only thing I could think about was, is anybody touching an Oreo cookie right now? (laughs) But instead of thinking like, what is his range? What type of hands does he have in this spot? So that's the first type of study tool that I came up with was, okay, what is it that I should be thinking about right now while I'm sitting here? You know, most people at the live poker table are sitting there thinking, watching the game or thinking about something else. I tell people if they wanna get better at poker, the first thing they should do is every single time the action is on someone, think about what they're should, what they doing with their range. What type of hands are they gonna be playing? So the person's under the gun, you're on the button. What type of hands is the under gun gonna be going to be playing if he puts money in the pot. You know, eventually when it gets to you, you know what you're going to do in every single spot against what the action has been already. So I think that's just like an easy first step for people to get better at poker.
1: I really like how you look at your anxiety attack in December 30th of 2013 as a blessing. I think that's a beautiful way to look at it. I personally have um, struggled only with serious mental issues when i took some birth control pills and i i feel like i also look at that as a blessing because obviously i got off them when i realized the connection Mm -hmm. like i had panic attacks and severe depression you know it's funny because sometimes the problem is when you get sucked into those things you're not aware of what's going on so Mm -hmm. sometimes it could take longer than it should for you to get out of it but now looking back on it i'm happy because i feel like i can really relate to people better Mm -hmm. because i've actually had those Incidents, but because I'm not on those medications anymore, they don't resurface. So I feel like in some ways I have the best of both worlds. That I can sympathize, but it's like mostly gone. Mm-hmm. Like that's a really nice way to look at it.
0: Yeah, I, I think the key word you said there is awareness, and that's what a lot of this comes back to is is recognizing that there might be something wrong first of all, and being aware of it. And then once you become aware of it, you find the the, the means to adjust the situation, and that's through awareness. And that's the the greatest thing that I've gotten out of meditation is just to be present in all these areas, and that's part of the reason that I'm able to play poker for a living and and be a father, or not part of the reason that I'm able to, but the reason that I think that I'm able to do it well because when I'm playing poker, I'm there, and when I'm, you know, I, I focus on these three big areas of my life: it's being a husband, being a dad, and being a, a poker player. And if I mix any of those, then I'm not going to be there and present. I'm not going to be aware. I'm not going to be able to give my best to the kids or to my wife or to poker. And so to be able to to separate those three things and to be fully aware and present in those is is what you need to do. It's
1: really difficult. That's actually funny because I was going to ask you one final question about what poker and parenting have in common. Um, Is there anything that you feel like is really similar and not obvious?
0: Okay, everything. (laughs) Believe it or not. Poker has taught me so much about to, to be a parent. And fr- I've learned so much from parenting towards poker. Going the opposite way, patience is number one. Patience in poker is, I think, a very underrated concept because it's such an aggressive game. You know, you have to be an aggressive, you have to go out there and, and win the chips. But I know that if I'm, if I'm trying to force the action, if I'm trying to force things, not just letting the game tump, come to me, then I'm playing in a bad mind state. Same thing with p- uh, parenting. If you're not patient as a parent, you are going to be in bad trouble because big trouble because there's just so much that you have to be patient for. Right. The second thing I think actually is that is not being results oriented, which is pretty interesting because you don't like where does that come into play in, in, in parenting? Well, there's certain things that you can do as a parent where that you'll achieve a good result. For instance, you set your kid up on an iPad, right? You and And they've been misbehaving. Well, they're probably not going to misbehave anymore, at least for right now while they're set up on this iPad. But is that going to be good for the long term with your interactions with them and things like that? So there's the couple of the, the big examples that I would give, I guess.
1: Yeah, no, it seems like you're doing a great job at both. And it's really awesome seeing your videos and your kids. Um, do you think they're going to play poker one day?
0: It's a good question. I, I don't think my oldest Ava ever will play poker. Cameron and Andrew, I could see them enjoying the game. They both like to play games. Uh, I could see them getting into poker a little bit, but I would certainly never push them to do so. If they, I'm, I'm on board. One of the things that my parents did for me that was really great was that they always truly believed in me, like deeply, deeply believed in who I was as a person and thought that I could accomplish anything I put my mind to. And having that deep belief in your kid is something that is invaluable. And that's what I'm trying to, to do as a parent for them. Just know that I think that they're really smart. And I think that they can think their way out of different situations. And and whatever that they ultimately want to get involved in, I will fully support, uh, you know, assuming safety.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. You know, of course, there's a lot of chess parents because children can play chess, unlike poker. And well, you know, on a serious competitive level. Mm. And I think that's one of the most important things too not to be results oriented, that it doesn't really matter if a kid loses or wins a game in the short term because it's all about like their long term passion for it. And so if they lose and it something motivates them to be better, then like that's actually a good thing. Right. And it sounds so cheesy and but it's funny because you do see the stronger chess parents seem to be like less influenced by how a kid does because yeah. they get that whereas if you don't understand the game and you have this kid who's so passionate about this thing that you don't understand you're kind of clinging to that one thing the right. result so i sympathize with it. i get it you right. know and probably my son will become interested in something that i have no idea about so hopefully right. i'll be able to keep that in mind yeah. well thank you so much it's been so wonderful having you here trevor and since you do play every hand challenges i might have to grab you towards the very end when I'm struggling to get those eight three offsuits or you know I do have some some of them clicked off already but I'm sure there's just gonna be some random hand like you know nine three seven three that I'm gonna have to be calling you up about I'm
0: sure I'll have plenty of those for sure
1: <laughs> thank you so much and he is a momi on Twitter you can find his blogs blogs rather on YouTube at raising the Nazis as, well as his podcast on Apple and anywhere else you find podcasts thank you so much Jen. Thanks. Thanks for listening to thepokergrid.com. Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends about your favorite episode. If you want to support my projects, consider a tax deductible donation to U.S. Chess Women. We are working to even the mind sports playing field by bringing more women and girls into chess. Till next time, as we count down 169 hands. No
0: one ever busts! They say I'm lucky Oh no, no need to bluff With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve Yeah, I got talent